I am very pleased to introduce our speaker today. There are certain terms that make us realize that there's nothing new under the sun, which of course is a cliche, but I, I will use it anyway. And we hear the term globalization. It's become a regular part of our vocabulary. We hear about the global economy, the global war on ter terrorism, and it makes us realize how interconnected the world is. It seems more so than ever. But as is often the case, we assume that globalization is a recent development. Well, for those of you who happened to be here last week for Charles Mann's lecture uh, at the Stuart Christian Lecture, you realize that the concept of globalization as a reality goes back almost 500 years with the establishment of the Spanish Empire when they uh, established a foothold in Manila and began trading humans and goods throughout the world, and it has become an increasing phenomenon since that time. Well, in this, in, with, as you will see from today's speaker, globalization began with the early infant American Republic. And in that early period of the American Republic, it was a time like our own in which ideological beliefs often clashed violently and extended well beyond the borders of our nation states throughout the world. It was also a time in which the old order seemed to be breaking down, leaving people uncertain about the future. I think it was appropriate when the British surrendered at Yorktown, they played the tune, The World Turned Upside Down. Today we have a very distinguished speaker who has described this unsettled time in a splendid new book, The Great Upheaval, America and the Birth of the Modern World. It came out last year, it was a New York Times bestseller. USA described it as, as the best book of 2007. And many of you know our speaker today, Jay Winnick, who gave a banner lecture in 2002. He spoke then on his acclaimed best-selling book, April 1865, which also was a bestseller. And has been described by many people as one of the best books of the uh, early 21st century. Jay Winnick earned his bachelor and PhD degrees from Yale University, a master's degree from London, the London School of Economics. He is a senior scholar of history and public policy at the University of Maryland. No doubt many of you see his frequent contributions to the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. Uh, he makes frequent appearances on the History Channel. And we are very fortunate to have him come and speak on the crucial years when the American Republic was new and there were many doubts that it would survive. As he did in April 1865, Mr. Winnick weaves a compelling narrative that gives us a fresh perspective on a familiar subject. So please join me in welcoming back to the Virginia Historical Society our good friend, Mr. Jay Winnick. Hello, it's, it's great to be here. Um, as Charlie mentioned, and Charlie's a good friend, and he's really just done marvelous things with the Virginia Historical Society. And, you know, one thing I should say is when you write best-selling books, you travel around the country. And I've seen all the different historical societies, and I really think the VHS ranks among the very best of them. So it's always a pleasure to come back here. Um, now, having said that, can you all hear me, by the way? Now, having said that, let's get to the subject of my book today. And it's, you know, I'm used to, when I come here, I would almost have expected to talk about April 1865. But we're going to talk about um, the great upheaval, America and the birth of the modern world. The question that I ask in the great upheaval is as follows, and what I look at. 
is throughout history, all republics have fallen prey to predatory powers or Caesarism. They've withered away through despotism or internal dissension. And we've seen this from, of course, the great Roman Empire to the little remembered United Netherlands. Well, this nearly happened to the infant American Republic, but didn't. Why? What we see is that somehow, and I talk about this in the great upheaval, America ma managed to avoid the cruel upheavals of the age and refused to become a, great, a graveyard for the great powers of the day. It's an extraordinary story. Now, the book is at once the story of how a struggling America survived amid a world at war, and at the same time, it's a portrait of the most significant era in all of human history as told through the different lenses of the infant American Republic, uh, the monarchical France, and Tsarist Russia. And what we see is that this is probably the most remarkable decade, as I said, in history. Consider what happens in this time span of some 10 years. In some 10 years, republicanism, democracy, despotism, liberalism, nationalism, all sprouted from this fertile soil. Within the same time span, a savage world war would be fought that would last for some 21 years and consume many millions of lives. A great dynasty in France, probably the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen, would be appended. The first modern holy war between Islam and the Christian world would be fought. And against all the odds, somehow, republicanism and democracy would take root. And we see that with France, America, and Russia, not only did they determine the outlines of the world back then in the 1790s, but these were outlines which continue to touch us even today. We also see this as a time span with the greatest galaxy of actors the world has ever seen. To be sure, it was the age of George Washington, Hamilton, and Jefferson. But it was also the age of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, of Robespierre and Napoleon, of Catherine the Great and Voltaire. And yet too often, history forgets this, but it is a fact that they were all peers. So what was the great upheaval? In effect, what I look at is America in its forming and founding decade as it struggles to survive at home and abroad. France, as it goes from this stable, um, regal mon mon monarchy and devolves into revolution, which would sweep the entire continent. And Catherine the Great's Russia, which actually had started out as a liberalizing empire, but watching these events, both in America as well as in France, turns harshly repressive. But in contrast to the way conventional histories are told, none of these events occurred in isolation. Indeed, in the 1790s, what we see is that their fates combined in one extraordinary moment to give us the nation, in fact, the world we've inherited. Now, to appreciate this, we need to restore the world as the founders saw it, not as we saw it, but as they saw it. For example, you can't understand America's founding decade without seeing it in the context of the cataclysmic events sweeping the rest of the globe. For example, you can't appreciate George Washington and his fears of foreign invasion in the formative years of the 1790s or of being swallowed by predatory European powers without seeing them in relationship to Napoleon's armies, that war, and Malay Dupin's inimitable words, devouring each country in Europe leaf by leaf like the head of an artichoke. Or you can't appreciate America's early fears of being swallowed by these predatory powers without seeing them against the backdrop of, Ru of the Russian tidal wave of armies laying siege to Islam and literally wiping the ancient kingdom of Poland off the face of the map. In each case, these grim examples powerfully underscored to the young American republic 
the perils of military weakness in the face of these imperialistic European armies. So what we see then is that the world of the 1790s was far more interconnected than we realize. In fact, in, a, in an arc of revolution that stretched from Constantinople to Cairo to St. Petersburg to Philadelphia to Paris, the world was knit together in ways that even today is hard for us to fathom. And what we see is that every step along the way in the 1790s, as this world was being created, the great leaders of the day watched each other. They reacted to each other. They responded to each other. That was how the modern world was formed. We also see that a number of the leading secondary actors who crossed and recrossed borders, often making revolution not once but twice, also were watching each other and reacting and responding to each other. A few quick examples. Think of John Paul Jones, of course, who fought with such great glory in America's Navy in the Revolutionary War. Well, he left America in a meeting brokered by Thomas Jefferson, of all people, went to Russia where he met Catherine the Great and, and actually presented her with a copy of the Constitution, and then he fought in her Navy against the Islamic world trying to lay siege to Constantinople. Or think of Thaddeus Kosciuszko, the, the Pole, again, who was a good friend of George Washington's, fought with great distinction, uh, both in the North as well as the South in the Revolutionary War. Well, after our revolution, he went back to Poland where he sought to institute a revolution based on our principles, and he fought against, of all people, Catherine the Great of Russia. Or think of Thomas Jefferson, of course, who so beautifully penned those words of the Declaration of Independence and would become our third president. Well, Jefferson was in France as the envoy, and he was advising the French, the revolutionaries, on their revolution. Or, of course, think of Thomas Paine. Well, he was the one who wrote those beautiful words, these are times that try men's soul, that did so much to, to galvanize and support Washington's desperate, starving, and freezing armies in their greatest time of plight. Well, he went to France, where he actually joined the Revolutionary Assembly, and, and as the revolution galloped ever further, he was slated to be guillotined, and only by by a luck of fate, at the last moment was he saved from being beheaded. Or finally, think of Citizen Genet. Well, Genet was the, the, the French envoy, and Catherine the Great's Russia was thrown out by her, and then he came to America, where he sought to foment insurrection on our borders. So we see there's this enormous interconnectedness and this remarkable amount of fluidity, and this was how the world was formed. Now, let me give you a few examples of this incredible era and the people who shaped it. In 1787, America had just weathered the Shays Rebellion, and at that point, the founders realized that if they were going to survive, if America were going to survive, they had to create a whole new form of government. So it was that in that, that spring and that summer that 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to, to undertake this daring gambit of creating a constitution. And it was a daring gamble really unlike anything the world had ever seen, a government in which it had its powers divided between an executive branch and a legislative branch and, and, um, and a judicial branch, in which the states and the federal government also sort of vied for power as well. But the question for the young Americans was, in a world at war, in a world in turmoil, in a world with predatory European powers, could America survive? Would it survive? Now, quite interestingly enough, as America was trying to seek to devise a government that would somehow work and enable it to take its wings in this new world, France, monarchical France, was facing a similar fateful choice. Think about France for a second. 
France at this point, though it had a, a, it had a system of government, a monarchical regime, which was so esteemed and so envied by all the great countries around the world, where ever since the Sun King, where every movement of the king, from the morning he woke up and the sun streamed into his bedroom to the, to the time when he went to bed, every action of his was watched and emulated by not only the nobles, but people throughout France and by potentates and czars and emperors all throughout the world. Yet in France itself, France was increasingly now descending into chaos in part because the country was bankrupt from its support of the Americans in our Revolutionary War. Also, we see that in France, a number of reformers, both nobles and soldiers, who had fought gallantly side by side and shoulder by shoulder with Americans, had come back to France, monarchical France, with a stirring message. They said that these Americans had instituted a new form of government and throwing off the unjust yoke of an unjust king, and they were saying, so too, we can create a representative government in our monarchical regime as well. So as the government, as the revolution started beginning in France, in 1789, the Bastille fell. And when the Bastille fell, it was literally a sound heard around the world. George Washington was sent the key to the Bastille by Tom Paine, and, which he hung up in his office, while even in far-off Russia, Russian nobles and merchants danced in the street. And yet when King Louis XVI, the king of France, was, was told about the events taking place with the fall of the Bastille, he said to an aide, he looked at him very pointedly, and he said, is this a revolt? And the aide said, no, king, this is a revolution. And yet it was a revolution in which a number of the Americans thought that our principles would be their principles and in which we placed great hopes. For example, Thomas Jefferson enthused, he said, quote, their principles are our principles. And he was convinced that the liberty of the whole earth depended upon France's revolution. But just as America was breaking into political factions, the Republicans and the Federalists, it seemed so too in France in the revolution, they were breaking into factions with ominous implications for the young United States. As it turned out, France's revolution would increasingly soon turn violent and radical, and it would not become a replica of America's, as so many thought and hoped, like a Jefferson or a Madison or a Monroe. Consider, for example, the storming of the Bastille, which I just re referred to earlier. In the storming of the Bastille, the, governor, the, the Bastille fell. The governor of the fort was taken prisoner. And when he was taken prisoner, he was marched through the streets of Paris. And as he was marched through the streets of Paris, he was kicked, he was spit at, he was slapped. They knocked him with, with feet. Uh, they started hitting him with clubs. And at one point, he melodramatically snapped, and he said, enough already. And as he said, enough already, the furies were unleashed and the demons were unleashed. And it was at that point, his head was cut off, not quickly with a sword, but slowly with a penknife. And then it was placed, it was placed on, a, on a stick and it was paraded through the streets. Um, it was paraded through the streets of Paris. And then around the same time, the Palace of Versailles, shortly thereafter. And again, remember, Versailles was the greatest palace in all the world and it was once deemed so impregnable that it had neither moats nor walls to protect it. And yet Versailles was sort of, it was assaulted by a mob of some 8,000 Parisians, most of them poor and hungry market women. And these, this mob would, would, would behead and kill a number of the king's closest, closest um, guards, his, his musketeers even. And then they would take the king and the queen and his, and his terrified children and forcibly bring them back to Paris 
where they would become, in effect, prisoners of the revolution. So around this time, as the revolution was galloping, the French, to be sure, would write the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, some of the most ennobling words the world has ever seen. And again, it's important to remember this declaration was modeled after our Declaration of Independence in many ways. But even as they were writing the, these, these magnificent words that inspired oppressed peoples everywhere, it turned out terror and violence was becoming the watchword of the revolution. By 1793, the guillotine was working overtime. No one was exempt, not the poor nor the rich, neither men nor women, neither aristocrats nor peasants. In fact, if you think about in 1792 and the September massacres, consider what happened there. The prisons were emptied, and as the prisons were emptied, all the prisoners had to, had to confront a street-side justice by mobs who were literally governing by terror. And as this happened, these, these innocent people who are usually in prison for nothing more than their political opinions, and again, if you think of the comparisons with America, it's quite striking, they were forced to run this gauntlet of terror in which they were beaten with clubs, they were, they were impaled with knives, they had their heads cut off with swords, they had saws that were ripping at them. And at one point, a woman was lifted up and had her legs spread and had a bonfire built underneath her. At another point, another woman, who was the closest consort of the queen, it turned out, had her head cut off and her heart literally ripped out of her body where it was, where it was eaten by an enthusiastic Republican. And even children were murdered in cold blood. Now, when I mentioned this woman, uh, the Princess Lombal, who was the closest consort to the queen, who had her head cut off and her heart ripped out, well, from there, her head was taken to a beauty salon where the blood was washed off, her hair was powdered and curled, and, and her head was stuck on a pike, and then it was brought beneath the temple where the, where the king and queen were being held in imprisonment by the revolution. And when the queen looked down at her closest friend, she began to weep, and then she fainted. Now, when asked to stop the terrible violence of these September massacres, a member of the National Assembly said, no, a river, a river of blood must run between us and our enemies. And yet soon that river was running endless. The king of France, the man who was once seen as answerable only to God, he would be beheaded on a cold, wintry day in which he was marched uh, in front of some 220,000 soldiers and all of France, all of Paris was there, and you would hear the rat-a-tat, the rat-a-tat, the rat-a-tat of drums. And as he, as he, as he got up to the, the guillotine, he tried to give one last speech saying, I forgive you, I forgive my enemies, I care only about France. And then all of a sudden you heard the, the shout of the tambours, and then the blade came down and the king was beheaded. And the Jacobins, after beheading the king, soon they were beheading their political enemies, and soon thereafter, they were beheading each other. But even this was not enough for the, for the revolutionary terror. Soon, the revolution si systematically sanctioned the drowning of priests in, in, the, in the Vendée. These were called Republican baptisms. Then, the elderly were marched out into, into fields in which they were forced to dig their own graves, and, and then they were shot in the head, and they were tumbled into their own mass graves. This, of course, is what the Nazis used to great effect in World War II. And then even a distinguished French chemist suggested the use of poison gas to speed the killing in the French Revolution. And of course, in doing so, he presaged the ghastly gas ovens of Nazi Germany. It became a crime even to criticize the revolution in France. 
As America's ambassador, George Washington's good friend, Governor Morris, wrote back home at the time, he said, when you look out into the groves of the revolution, you see nothing but gallows. It's at this point, then, that Catherine the Great, the empress of Russia, who ruled the largest empire and the most powerful empire in all the world, would play a profound role. Now, let's remember for a second just who Catherine the Great was. For some 30 years, she was the dominant ruler in the world stage. In fact, in 1787, as the Americans were gathering at Philadelphia to create the Constitution, she was in the Crimea preparing to wage war and to destroy Islam. Yet early on, it's also important to remember, she was an idol of all the great Enlightenment philosophs. She corresponded with the great Voltaire. She drew upon the eminent Montesquieu in governing Russia, actually 20 years before the Americans did in creating the Constitution. She read Benjamin Franklin, and she corresponded with no less than Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. She even played a role in America's founding with her League of Armed Neutrality, which isolated Britain diplomatically in the high seas. Yet when the French Revolution broke out, she was determined to crush this democratic contagion emanating from France. In doing so, she unleashed modern authoritarianism and turned her back on decades of the Enlightenment. In taking advantage of the chaos in Europe, she would not only seek to destroy France's revolution, but she would spearhead an effort to wipe, literally, the ancient kingdom of Poland off the face of the map. And again, remember that this, this Polish revolution was, was headed by Kosciuszko, who was a good friend of Washington's, and it was patterned after our very same principles. And around this same time, Catherine the Great began to refer disdainfully to George Washington, a man who she once admired, but now she talked about him as a despicable rebel, and she turned on a revolution in America that she once professed to admire. Now, what about in America? What was happening at the same time? We see that an ocean away, America too, this infant republic, was swept up in the revolutionary tide that was sweeping the globe. Consider America for a second. George Washington and the founders had thus far created a government where none had existed. They created a cabinet where none had existed. They created a modern economy where none had really existed. But just as France was riven by the rival factions of the monarchists, the Jacobins, and the Girondins, so in America, we too were also cleaved by different factions. The Federalists of George Washington's party and Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson's Republicans. And they were fighting bitterly over the, over the status and the direction of the nation. And one of the things that most cleaved this young America and why it's so important to see America within this larger context of the age were how you can understand and appreciate and see what was taking place without seeing them in this larger in this larger environment. For it turns out that Washington increasingly feared that this young America would take the, the, ever, the ever chaotic and dangerous and violent direction of France. And it was a fear that was reinforced when the French revolutionary envoy, Citizen Genet, appeared in America for the first time. Now, Genet was a young man who actually grew up in the Palace of Versailles. His sister is one of the best friends to Marie Antoinette. And he had recently been in Russia, where he quite presciently foresaw the terrible revolution that would sweep away the czars in, in Imperial Russia. But when he came to America, he came with an audacious agenda, and that was to foment insurrection at America's borders. He even sought to raise a private army, and in doing so, he did it with the connivance of South Carolina's governor. And wherever Genet went, he was met by huge and adoring crowds who saw America's revolution 
at one with France's revolution. Just imagine the kind of fervor that was rippling through America at the time. And it turns out that Thomas Jefferson agreed with Genet, James Madison did, James Monroe, and Andrew Jackson, all future presidents of America. And it also turns out that wherever Genet went, democratic societies cropped up across the U.S. And these democratic societies in many ways, especially to George Washington, looked like nothing more than the dreaded Jacobin clubs in France, which were responsible for so much of the violence and mayhem. But as Washington, as President Washington and Alexander Hamilton looked around, they did not see the, sympathetically the revolution, not after the beheading of a king who had done so much to help America get its independence. And he also saw America as being treated like a vassal state and humiliated in the eyes of the world. And he worried about America spiraling into some kind of a hell like in France. So what to do? Washington knew he had to be careful about falling on the wrong side of Robespierre, the, the dictator of France, and, and the ruling powers of France whose armies were making all of Europe tremble. And he also know, knew that back in Paris, the members of the Committee of Public Safety who were responsible for the terror in the guillotine, they literally mocked Washington as an old man who was being mocked by his own people. But so what did Washington do? He knew better than the charge into the cannon's mouth of France's mighty armies, but in the end, he quite creatively secured the recall of Genet, thus diffusing the crisis. But far from, far from seeing his troubles being over, it turns out they were just beginning. For in 1794 and 1795, what would happen would be the Whiskey Rebellion in America, and this would be over taxes, ostensibly. And this, this rebellion threatened to cut America into a civil war not north-south as what happened in our American Civil War, but east-west. And as this re rebellion was beginning, and this was taking place again at the same time the terror was heating up in France, it turned out some 8,000 whiskey rebels, by the way, that's as many men as we used as, with regulars to defeat the British at Yorktown, some 8,000 whiskey rebels were carrying mock guillotines, they were toasting Robespierre, the dictator of France, and they were threatening, of all things, literally to march in Philadelphia. This was increasingly looking like a redux of France's revolution as well. It turned out that they were even shooting up likenesses of George Washington. And Washington could not, could not rule out the possibility that America's whiskey rebels would accept the material and, and military support of France's ruling powers, as so many other insurgent groups around Europe were doing at the same time. So what did Washington do? He assembled a mighty force of some 12,000 men. Now, that's, a very, that's more men than he had at the Battle of Brandywine, for example. And he sought to crush this, to crush this rebellion. As Hamilton said at the time, he said, Beware, my sir, of doing anything. You must appear like Hercules when you meet this riot. But then Washington did something else quite interesting. What he did was he met a number of the demands of the rebels. And in doing so, he helped to tampen and soften the crisis. And... In the end, when Light Horse Harry Lee's forces arrived to meet these whiskey rebels, and you all should know who Light Horse Harry Lee, he was Robert E. Lee's father, the man who said that, that uh, Washington was first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Well, when Lee arrived, most of the rebellion of the whiskey rebels melted away into the countryside, and the men they took back to France, of them, only two were convicted, two were indicted, and in both cases, Washington pardoned both. So what we see as we look in the period of the 1790s, 
we, in, in America, we see this as a dramatic turning point, not just for the nation, but for the world. Unlike in France, where Louis XVI acted decisively and lost not only control of the revolution, but his head, and what would then commence would be a bloody, a bloody world war that would last over two decades and cost over some 10, 15 million lives. Um, and, what we, and what we would also see in Russia, where Catherine the Great had abandoned decades of enlightenment and a philosophical spirit, and watching these events taking place both in America then in, in, in France, harshly turned her back in the Democratic and re Republican tide, and she used massive force to crush the, re the rebellion in, in Poland, and she unleashed, in effect, modern authoritarianism. So unlike in France, unlike in Russia, what we see is that George Washington and the American founders, against all the odds, despite all the tensions, despite all the fears, somehow they, re they acted with both nuance and politics as well as force. And in the end, America, unlike in France, unlike in Russia, we got coalitions and politics, and arguably the world was never again the same. Thank you very much. Thank <clears throat> you.